This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hi, I'm Raylene Berry. This week, after looking at trials, failure, suffering, and loss, we will take a look at doubt as another of life's breakings that God can use to make us strong at the broken places. We will hear from Grace alumnus, former adjunct professor, Bible teacher, and pastor Mark Ray, who has stepped into the role of VP of Community Development for Grace and Executive Director of the Center for Grace. We all have moments of doubting. Doubting can bless us and hinder us. Let's listen in as Mark Ray, who taught this series at Midland Bible Church, as he helps us know what to do when in doubt. There was a defendant who was on trial for murder. All the evidence was stacked against this defendant, except for one thing, one piece of evidence that wasn't out there, and that was that they couldn't find a body. There was no corpse in this trial. And his lawyer decided he was going to pull off a little trick on the jury in his closing argument. He said, you know, this, all the evidence is really stacked against him. I may not win this anyway, so this is my last shot. And he got up in front of his closing arguments, and he said to the jury, I've got a surprise for you. In the next minute, the man who is presumed dead in this case is going to walk through the back doors of this courtroom. And every eye turned to look at the back doors as he stood and watched the seconds count down. Well, a minute came and a minute went, and no body came through the back door. He looked over at the jury and he said, I've got to tell you that I made up that story. But I made up that story to prove a point. Because every single one of you that turned around and looked at the back, including every single member of the jury, I have to put it to you that you must give a verdict of not guilty to my client because of reasonable doubt. You had enough doubt in your mind that he might walk through the door that you've got to say he is not guilty. The jury confused somewhat, surprised, got up and deliberated. And in about two or three minutes, they came back in. The foreman stood up and he rendered the verdict, guilty as charged. The lawyer stood up and said, how can you possibly bring forth a verdict of guilty? Every single one of you looked at that back door and they said, yes, we did, but your client didn't. (laughs) This morning, we're going to look at Doubt, that debilitating doubt, doubt that plagues each one of us at some point in time in our life, doubt that plagues us for these questions, we may doubt our salvation. We may doubt the assurance of We may doubt our eternal heaven. We may doubt God's presence in our lives. We may doubt God's goodness in our lives. We may doubt that God even exists because of the circumstances that surround us. That doubt can break us, but we're going to look at four different scenarios in which God comes and takes that doubt and creates something incredible out of that doubt. This may be a different perspective for some of you. 
a look at doubt. Because what I'm going to tell you this morning is, in certain circumstances, doubt is okay. And that may seem like something strange to us. Wait, isn't doubt unbelief? We're going to talk about that. We're going to see what the scriptures unfold, and we're going to look at four different circumstances. The first one, coming out of John chapter 20, verses 19 through 29, this is the epitome of doubt in one guy. Can you name him? Thomas. Thomas. Doubting Thomas. And between you and me, friends, I think doubting Thomas gets a pretty bad rap. Because when we look carefully at the text, we're going to see some very interesting things about Thomas and what he did and how he responded, as well as how the Lord responded to his doubt. This starts in chapter 20, verse 19. And what I'm going to do is walk you through the first encounter of Jesus showing up, the transition period that happens, and the second encounter when Thomas is actually there. John chapter 20, verse, starting in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, beginning of that first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Now, a couple of things to set this thing up. The resurrection has occurred. The Jews are out to get anybody associated with this because the, the lie that's out there is that the disciples came, overpowered the guards, stole the body, and have hidden it to say that Christ has risen, just as he said he would. So we get a, from John, we get a very distinct time of day. It was the same day at evening, beginning the first day of the week. So we know exactly when this was. John gives us a very good historical presence for it. And then he says this, when the doors were shut. Now, why do you think he gives us that specific indication? The doors were shut. There was no entrance into this room. All right? That, the meaning behind this is John's saying something spectacular is getting ready to happen because the doors were shut. The disciples are assembled there, and they're assembled for fear of the Jews. They've pulled together. They're in the upper room. That's where we think this traditionally happened. They're back in the upper room. They've assembled together, and they're terrified that the Jews are coming to find them. And the doors are shut to keep the Jews out, to keep their place hiding, their, their, their hiding place secret. And now Jesus does three things. Watch and see what he does. He came in and stood in the midst and spoke to them. Three very specific things that prove his physical presence in their midst, all right? He came into the room, seemingly through the door. With that glorified body, he enters the place with the door still shut. He comes in and he stands in front of them. He didn't hover in front of them. He didn't levitate in front. He's standing right in front of them and he speaks. And he speaks in a language that they understand. And what does he say to them? Peace be with you. Now, if you're a disciple and you're hiding in an upper room, what's the one thing that you'd want? Peace, right? And he's going to give us a very good validation for that peace in the next statement. So he comes in, he stands before them, he proves his physical presence in front of them, and then passes his peace that goes beyond all understanding onto them. When he said this, he then showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. No kidding. So he stands in front of them. He says, peace be with you. And he shows them the holes in his hands, the holes in his feet, the spear hole in his side as proof that he is the Messiah, the resurrected one. This is his first appearance to the disciples, not James and uh, uh, John and Peter, but to the full band of disciples. He shows himself minus one person, right? Thomas is not here. 
But he shows himself and he gives them the validity of him being there, his physical presence, his speech, and then this is me and the proof of the pudding is the holes in my hands and feet and the hole in my side. And I love John's understatement. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Really? That's all the disciples were? Wouldn't they be jumping and shouting for joy and dancing around the room and just, and I'm not going to dance for you this morning, but that's about what they'd be doing. And John gives us this very understated statement they were glad. Well, why were they glad? Christ showed up, proved himself, this is who it is, and then extended his peace upon them. So in this first encounter, Christ shows up, Thomas isn't there, the disciples see it, he gives visible proof for himself, and now we get a transition period. He said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, the disciples were glad. He now sends them out as he has been sent, it's the words that he says. Jesus said to them, peace be to you, as the Father has sent me, I send you. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit, they get the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. He's now giving them purpose for what they're going out to do, to spread the good news of the kingdom of God that comes with forgiveness of sins. Remember John, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's the fulfillment of Jesus now sending out the disciples on his behalf, and they have the proof Right there that this is Jesus. The holes in his hand, the holes in his feet. Now Thomas, verse 24, this is one of my favorite statements. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So Thomas is not there. What's Thomas called? The twin, right? He's called the twin. Did it ever cross your mind, where's the other? Where's the twin? Thomas is here. He's followed Jesus. He's been a disciple for three years. He's followed after. There was one commentator, and I loved his statement. This commentator said this. He said, perhaps, perhaps Thomas had enough of an independent spirit to break from his twin and follow Jesus. Now think about that for just a second. Here's Thomas. Jesus says, my words, my life, you following me will separate families. Here's Thomas who has a twin. We don't know where his twin is. We don't, his twin's obviously not there. Thomas is a disciple. He's chosen to follow after Jesus. With that independent spirit, he's made a break with his twin. Isn't that an interesting statement? Maybe that independent spirit is the underlying cause of what Thomas does next. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. By the way, we've seen the Lord without you. So he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Here's Thomas. They've had the proof with Jesus. And what did Jesus show them? Nails in the hands, nails in the feet, holding his side. They've had that proof. But now they're asking him on their testimony, on their eyewitness, to believe that Jesus is resurrected, and he showed himself. Thomas says, guys, I've had this independent spirit all my life. I broke from my twin. I followed after Jesus, and I need to see the hands and the feet for myself. It's not that I don't believe Jesus isn't resurrected. I'm not sure I believe your testimony unless I see it myself. Prove it to me. I need the validity that you all had because he showed up in your room and he showed up and showed you his hands and his feet. But I didn't get to see that. So until I get to see that, my doubts are out there. 
(laughs) So now we get scene two, verse 26. And after eight days, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Jesus came to the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said, peace be to you. Does it sound like deja vu? Here comes the second uh, Jesus entrance part two. He comes in the exact same scenario. Doors are shut. They're up in the upper room. All the disciples are assembled. And now Thomas is with them. And Jesus comes in, stands in their midst, and speaks to them, peace be with you. Who do you think that's for? Disciples have already heard this. This is directed right at Thomas. And it's directed right at Thomas's doubt. And I want you to notice Then Jesus said to Thomas, verse 27, Thomas, you dummy. Thomas, how dare you not believe? Thomas, you should know better. Does he say that? No. What Jesus says to Thomas is, Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving, but be believing. Jesus now does exactly for Thomas what he did to the other disciples. He validates his own... He brings him all the way forward to the point where Thomas now can say, I've seen him. I haven't just heard about him, but I've seen him. And I want you to see Thomas's faith here. Because the next verse lays out Thomas's faith. He says this. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Now notice what the text doesn't say. It doesn't say Thomas went up to to Jesus and put his finger in his hands, does it? It doesn't say Thomas went up to Jesus and put his hand in his side, does it? It says when Jesus said, come do this, reach in and touch me, that Thomas goes down to his knees and says, my Lord and my God. You see, the doubt that Thomas had I think he gets a bad rap for. Because what he was asking for was the valid proof. And listen to what Jesus says after that, because this is the telling statement for me. He goes down and he says, my Lord and my God. He answers who he believes all along, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Now, this is not a scathing rebuke of Thomas. It's a statement of fact. Thomas, because you have seen You have believed. And you can almost hear Jesus say, way to go, Thomas. You did exactly the same thing the other disciples did. You saw it, and you believed. The other disciples saw it, and they were glad. The same statement of fact is here. Jesus is looking at Thomas, and he's not saying, shame on you for doubting. What he's saying to him is, Thomas... Your doubt moves you to the point of seeing, and now that you see, you believe. Your doubt is gone. Your belief has taken the place of that doubt. But then he goes on, and he does say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. What Jesus gives to Thomas is the opportunity to validate and to move that doubt from the doubt that it was into a deep, deep doubt. Faith. And I want you to see how deep this faith was. Selwyn Hughes tells the story this way. He said, Thomas had a moment of doubt, but he came back from that place of weakness to become strong at the broken places. How strong? Well, there is a well-authenticated tradition that has it that Thomas went to India 
founded a church there, and even today there are Christians there that call themselves by his name, the St. Thomas Christians. His doubts were allayed in one glorious moment of illumination, and so can yours. He goes on to say this, doubt your doubts, but believe your beliefs. What Thomas did was he doubted his doubts, all right? I hear your word, but I'm still doubting, and I'm going to doubt even that your word is right until I see it. But once that, once that fact came in, once he had the validation of Jesus, his doubt moved directly to what? Strong, rock-solid belief to the point that he goes off and starts a church in Christ's name in India. Sometimes doubts can drive us to a very deep faith. Amen? Amen. Sometimes those doubts, if we do not allow them to stay doubts, but when Christ presents himself in the midst of that doubt, it moves it from doubt to belief, and in the midst of that doubt, we move to strong belief. What we find in Thomas is that the moment Christ said, it's me, Thomas said, I believe. And it was a rock-solid belief. What did doubt do for Thomas? Moved him from doubt to belief, to a deeper faith. So let me walk you to the next one. I love this one. This comes from Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. This is John the Baptist. John the Baptist, who was in the Jordan River, baptized Jesus, saw the The dove descend, heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is John the Baptist who said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is John the Baptist who was to be the Elijah, to open the pathway for Jesus to come. This is the one who prepared his way, made his path straight, the one who jumped in the womb when Mary came to visit Elizabeth. This is that John the Baptist. So now we're at Matthew chapter 11. John is in prison. And we start in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples that he departed from there to teach and to preach in the cities. So Jesus is now going about. He sent out the disciples. He's going about from city to city and town to town, and he's doing exactly what the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said he's going to do, preaching and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God to the people. So he's out there fulfilling his prophetic statement. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, so John has one sense in play here. He has heard about the works, all right? So John's in prison. Jesus hasn't come to visit him. He's got his followers there, but Jesus is out doing what Jesus is supposed to do. John's in prison. The one who is to prepare the way for him, the one who baptized him, is in prison. And he's heard about the things that Jesus has done. Verse 2, he says, he'd heard about them in prison. He sent two of his disciples and said to Jesus this, are you the coming one or do we look for another? Now, had John lost his faith that there would be a coming one? Has John lost his faith that there would be a Messiah? No, because he says, are you the coming one? Not is there a coming one, but are you the one? So he hasn't lost his faith in a coming one to come. He's just asking the question. His doubt is this, is Jesus the one? Because I've heard all of this stuff, but I haven't seen it with my own eyes. I haven't experienced it. I've only heard it. So he sends his two disciples to go and they ask the question, are you the one, the Messiah, the coming one, or do we look for another one? 
I love Jesus' answer in verse 4. Go tell John the things which you hear and see. So now two senses are involved in this thing. Go tell John this is what you've heard and what you've seen. You've actually seen this happen. In, as a matter of fact, in the Luke passage, it says after he says this, Jesus went out and immediately started to heal. So he says, do this, tell John this, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now this is directly from the passage in Isaiah that we find out in Luke, the first thing that Jesus ever unfolds in the synagogue, he rolls out the scroll of Isaiah and says, this is what the Messiah will do. He'll heal the blind, he'll heal the deaf, he'll raise the dead. He will do these things and bring the good news of the kingdom to the entire world. And then he sits down and he says, those of you who are hearing this know it's fulfilled in me to this day. Now he says, tell John, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lepers are cleansed, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Now why does he say this to John? Think about it for a moment. John's in prison. What does John see? Nothing. Is John blind? Yeah. What does John hear? He can only hear what's going on in the stories that are being brought to him. Is John a leper? Well, not in the actual sense, but lepers were untouchable. John's in prison. Who can touch him in prison? Jesus is going to him and saying, and in, act, in actuality, John in prison could be considered dead. No one except a couple of disciples have access to him. And the good news is preached to the poor. Well, John certainly is poor sitting in prison, but he hears the good news coming straight, straight from Christ. This is the one. And I'm not just saying it for all of those out there, John. I'm saying it directly for you because you are blind and you are deaf and you are lame and you are poor and you are a leper. And I have done these things for you too. We know the story about John after that. He actually goes and is beheaded for the sake of Christ. In 1887, Scottish evangelist Henry Drummond preached a sermon entitled Dealing with Doubt. And in this sermon, he observed the following. He said, Christ never failed to distinguish between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, I can't believe. Unbelief says, I won't believe. Doubt is honest. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. Loving the darkness rather than the light is what Christ attacked and attacked unsparingly. But for the intellectual questioning of Thomas and Philip and Nicodemus and John and the many others who came to him to have their great problems solved, he was respectful and generous and tolerant. How did he meet their doubts? Where the church was saying, brand those who doubt, he was saying, teach those. And when Thomas came to him, denied his very resurrection, and stood before him waiting for the scathing words and lashing of his unbelief, they never came. And for John, Christ gave him the fact, the fact of him as the Messiah. Sometimes doubt can motivate us to discovering the facts that are necessary to move us from doubt to unbelief. Can doubt be a good thing? Doubt can be a good thing. Thomas doubted and it moved him to a deep faith. John doubted and it moved him to this incredible search for the fact 
Is this the Messiah? And when it was answered, his doubt moved to belief. There's a third one I want to look at. This is Acts chapter 17. I call these the seekers. And how does doubt work for the seekers? Let me give you a little bit of background. Paul and Silas have been in Thessalonica. Paul's tradition was to go into the synagogue in any town he went into, and he would present the gospel of Jesus Christ first in the synagogue to see if the Jews would come forward. But John's, Paul's real mission was to go to the Gentiles, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So he comes into the synagogue now in Thessalonica, and they run him out of town. In fact, they're about ready to kill him for the news, the good news of Christ that he's bringing. Verse 10, Acts 17, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived there, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. So he's following his pattern. He goes to the synagogue of the Jews, and there he finds Jews that were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. So what does he find in Berea? He finds a group of Jews who receive the word that Paul brings with readiness. There is an attitude shift in them that though they doubt, they're ready to hear and then to prove the validity of those by going to the Scriptures. Now remember, at the time that Paul's there, what Scriptures are available to him? Do we have any of the New Testament writings in front of them? They're not there. They're going to the Old Testament Scriptures to find the truth and the validity of Christ. This is exactly what Christ did with the two men on the road to Emmaus. He pointed himself out how the Scriptures were fulfilled in him all throughout the Old Testament. So what they did is they go search the Scriptures for the answers to their doubts. And listen to what happens. Therefore, verse 12, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So what occurs here is with an attitude, with a heart that says, I may be doubting, but I'm open to finding the answers, they go and listen to Paul. They're ready to receive the good news that Paul brings, and then they go search the Scriptures to find it out. Wow! Imagine what might happen in our life if those doubts that we have, that when we're presented with the truth of the Scriptures, we go, oh, there's the truth, now I believe. Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? Samuel Coleridge said this, never be afraid of doubt if you have the disposition to believe. Never be afraid of doubt if you have the disposition to believe. You're a fair-minded believer looking for the answer. Unfortunately, there is very little sympathy given to those who doubt in most evangel evangelical churches today. Hey, you're not supposed to doubt. That means you don't believe. Well, um, raise your hand if you know everything about the Scriptures. Raise your hand if you know everything about God. Raise your hand if you know everything about the Holy Spirit, about Christ. Does that not bring up the fact that we ought to still, there are room for doubt, there are room for questions, there are room for answers to the things that we might struggle with? This lack of concern was the reason behind Francis Schaeffer's decision to open Labrie in a little town in Switzerland. He opened a place called The Shelter, a place where people could come with their doubts and have them answered with grace and love. Because back then and even now, the church takes people who doubt and instead of opening the doors for them to find answers to their doubts, it shoves them under the rug. Oh, I pray that we're not that kind of church. That we open our arms 
graciously and lovingly to people who are fair-minded, who want the answers, who have doubts and are searching, and we're the place that they come to find those answers. Now the final one. This is for believers. This comes out of James chapter 1. And the reason I'm putting this one in here is because there is a, there's a sense in which this passage, don't doubt. The one who doubts is like the waves tossed by the wind. It needs some explanation. So let's, go, let's walk into it real quick. James starts it in verse 1. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. We've walked through this with trials But let patience have its perfect word, that you may be perfectly complete, lacking in nothing. If you are lacking in something, then ask for wisdom. Let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So for those who are seeking, for those who are struggling, for those who are in the midst of trials, you ask God for the wisdom, for his insight, for his God's point of view into what's going on in your life. And he gives to all who ask him, how? Generously, liberally. He gives this wisdom to anybody who asks. Verse 6, but there are two conditions, two conditions to God giving this wisdom. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith. What James tells us is let him ask in faith with this understanding that when God speaks, we hear him. That we expect him to show up. That we expect him to bring us that wisdom and we are listening for that wisdom And the second one here is this, with no doubting. Sounds like a complete opposite of everything I've been telling you, right? Here's the condition. The first condition is let him ask in faith. The second condition is this. There's a little Greek word that is the word used for doubt. And it's not the word that Paul uses here. The word that Paul uses here is diachronomos. This word has as its translation this, debate. Now, here's the idea. Let me read the passage to you again. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask in faith, debating nothing. That's the idea behind what Paul's getting at here. Now, our good friend Dave Anderson wrote a wonderful commentary on James. It's called Triumph Through Trials. Some of you have read it. But here's what he says about this little passage. We go to the Lord for wisdom, and as soon as we are off our knees, we begin to toss around in our minds the solution to our problem. Shall I do this about it? Shall I do that about it? We are as furiously debating our problem after we've asked God for wisdom than before we asked Him. Does that sound familiar? I get up off asking God for wisdom, and 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 my thought process, my debating within myself never stops. James is simply saying, if you're going to turn to God for wisdom then stop your own inner raging. It's the man who is debating his options vociferously within himself who is told not to expect anything. Listen to the remainder of the passage. For he who doubts is like the wave of the sea tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. Because I am raging within myself, I can't even hear God's input, his wisdom into my life, because I'm so wrapped up in my own answers to the problem. So what James is saying to us is this, ask in faith for that wisdom and stop the debate. Stop the raging within. He goes on to say this, here's here's the, the imagery that James gives us. So sail the ship of your mind into the safe harbor of God's wisdom. Drop the anchor of your thoughts into the quiet depths of his infinite understanding. This is what we should do when we come to God for wisdom. 
It doesn't mean we should stop thinking about the trial completely, but it means we put to rest the furious debate that goes on in our hearts. We turn our problem over to Him and wait for His insight. Listening. Nothing is lovelier than the calm, unruffled soul who waits upon God and His wisdom in the midst of adversity. This is what James is talking about. Come. In the midst of your doubt, ask for wisdom. In the midst of your trial, ask for wisdom. In the midst of your suffering, ask for wisdom. And stop debating. Expect God to show up because He will. He'll give you the wisdom, but stop debating because when you debate within yourself, you can't even hear God, who many times speaks to us in a gentle whisper, wanting us to be quiet before Him to hear Him. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, says this. He says, doubts are not incompatible to faith. Let me say that again. Doubts are not incompatible to faith. Some people seem to think that once you become a Christian, you should never be assailed by doubts. But that's not so. Peter, John, Peter still had faith as he panicked in the storm. His faith was not gone, but because it was weak, doubt mastered him and overwhelmed him, and he was shaken. Doubts will attack us. Make no mistake. But that does not mean that we're to allow them to master us. Because doubt can also drive us to dependency on God. Doubt can drive us right to the very throne room where we are dependent solely on Him. And that's a good place, isn't it? Doubt, when left unchecked, can destroy. Doubt, when worked on by God, can move us to incredible belief. Thank you for listening to the Strong at Broken Places series. Stay tuned for next week as we wrap up this series with Mark sharing a message, a broken record. You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.